Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8. Isaiah, chapter 8. And reading verses 12 to 13, just by way of introduction. Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 12 and verse 13. Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And our subject this evening is fearing God alone. Well, we return to our series in the book of Isaiah, and it's been two weeks since our last uh, study, so uh, just to very briefly remind you of the context, uh, which is the uh, historical context that we see here in the book of Isaiah, and uh, essentially what is happening is that Judah, the southern kingdom, and Isaiah is the prophet to uh, Judah, essentially, to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is being threatened by an alliance against them, and that alliance is made up of Syria and Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom. Rezin is the king of Syria, and Pekah, a military commander, is the king of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. And this all takes place roughly around uh, 735 and 734 uh, BC. And uh, we considered uh, in chapter 7 that there was great fear in the land of Judah because of this alliance against Judah. Uh, king Ahaz particularly was very worried. And this leads Ahaz to do something very foolish. Instead of seeking help from God against uh, Syria and Israel, he seeks help from men, from the Assyrians, the uh, mighty Assyrian army, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians. And uh, he looks to them and the Assyrians would uh, come to their aid and would be victorious. Uh, but Judah would have to uh, pay the price because they have looked to men instead of God. So this is the situation. And by the way, something I, shouldn't, uh, I should have mentioned last time is... Uh, just to point out what a terrible thing it is that uh, Israel was threatening Judah and attacking Judah. Israel, who are, of course, supposed to be the Lord's people. They're supposed to be the brothers of uh, those in Judah. They are to be supposed to be the church, the 12 tribes. And so how terrible that Israel, the northern kingdom, attacks Judah, threatens Judah, seeks to oppress Judah. What a great tragedy. But this is, of course, something that happens very often and perhaps happens uh, or is happening at the present time, that the church or the, uh, the nominal church, those who profess to be believers but are not, the church can sometimes join forces and make alliances with the world. We see this in history, we see this most certainly now. Those who claim to be Christians 
and who bear the name of Christians and who are supposed to be the Lord's people, they can often make alliances with the world and side with the world. And this is what happens. This is what is happening today, of course. The nominal church siding with the world. And when the, uh, the nominal church, when the nominal church sides with the world, will they together attack true believers? That's, that's their common enemy. The nominal church, the liberal church, sides with the world to attack who? To attack the true church. Now, of course, uh, Judah wasn't perfect. And, uh, well, we're certainly going to learn about that in the book of Isaiah. They weren't perfect, but in some ways they represent the, uh, the remnant, the line of David was there, the, uh, the tribe of Judah from which Christ would come. Judah, in a sense, was symbolic of the true church, and they were attacked by an alliance, liberal, nominal, people of God joining forces with the world. And together they attack the Lord. And this is so clear uh, nowadays. We see, we see the nominal believers, liberal Christians. What are they doing? They're siding with the world. They're taking the world side. Believing in all the philosophies of the world, all the ideas of the world. They side with the world. And together they are attacking true believers. People like us. People who believe the Bible and love the word of God and they don't want to dishonor God. We are the ones who are being attacked. We are the common enemy, the Lord's people. And so this is a picture of this uh, taking place uh, in history. Israel, how far they have fallen. Supposed to be the children of God, yet they have sided with the world. They are attacking uh, Judah and uh, we can apply that very much to what is going on today. But uh, Syria and Israel will be defeated. And uh, this defeat is uh, prophesied by Isaiah, partly in uh, chapter 7, but here again in chapter 8. And this is what we begin with, because God instructs Isaiah to prophesy the defeat of Syria and Israel in quite an unusual way in verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll or a scroll, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, uh, Isaiah is uh, told to write down this uh, name, this great name. Now, what does this name mean? Some of you will have it in the margin of your Bibles. I've seen various different renderings. Some say that it uh, means making speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. Or hasten spoil and prey hastens. Well, what does that mean? Well, these words, obviously, as I've just mentioned, they're uh, prophesying the defeat of Syria and Israel. So perhaps what it means is that, well, Syria and Israel have made haste to uh, attack Judah, but actually what happens is they only fall prey. They fall prey to the Assyrians. So they've made haste to attack Judah, but what's happened? They've fallen prey to Assyria. So that is uh, at least part of what it means. 
It could also have a negative meaning for Judah in that uh, Judah have made haste in appealing to Assyria and Assyria have made haste in doing away with uh, their enemies but uh, actually Judah will be the prey of Assyria. So uh, it's a mysterious prophecy and it's a mysterious name but it uh, foresees what is about to take place in uh, the history of Israel and Judah. So uh, uh, Isaiah writes this uh, name on a scroll before witnesses. He takes faithful witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, who is uh, most likely the father-in-law of uh, King Ahaz. But then there's another part of the prophecy that is going to take place. And again, this is unusual. And I, Isaiah, went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So Isaiah and his wife, they have a child. His wife is uh, called a prophetess, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she had some uh, uh, divine revelation or inspiration. It just means she was the wife of the prophet, the prophetess. But they bear a son, or she bears a son, I should say. And, uh, well, he's given the name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And so uh, the son of Isaiah would, in a sense, be part of the prophecy that the enemies of Judah would uh, be overcome. And uh, this is uh, how it is played out. Quite unusual, but it's, uh, well, it's part of the prophecy that was made in Isaiah chapter 7. Remember uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, again, the enemies of uh, Judah will be overcome, and the Lord gives a sign in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, in other words. And while we know that this is a prophecy concerning Christ and uh, the meaning, the import of that prophecy was really that Christ will be the ultimate deliverance for Judah. Yes, Judah will be delivered in the short term, but there is a reference to Christ because he is the true deliverance for Judah. So his name his name, Emmanuel, symbolizes deliverance, true deliverance. But here, it's actually the, uh, the son that is born to Isaiah and his name that is uh, a sign of the deliverance that is to come. So there is a connection there, and uh, it's worth pointing that out. But uh, the enemies of Judah will be overcome, but uh, Judah herself will also be overcome. And uh, well, we ought to just look at verse 4 before we move on to that. So Isaiah has a son. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So uh, before Isaiah's son is uh, able to uh, cry father and mother, so perhaps when he's uh, a year old or two years old, by that time, Syria and Israel will be uh, done away with, will be removed as enemies 
of Judah. That's, that's really what it means. So very soon uh, this prophecy will come to pass. But Judah will also suffer. And this is seen from verse 5. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly and rejoice in reason and Remalia's son, now therefore behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. So this is the judgment upon Judah. They have uh, uh, refused the waters of Shiloh, we read here in verse 6. And, uh, well, what does that mean? This people refuseth the waters of Shiloh. Well, these were the waters in Jerusalem that flowed from the spring of Gion, and uh, eventually they would be channeled by King Hezekiah uh, into the pool of Siloam, and uh, we'll consider that much later on in the, in the book of Isaiah. But really it symbolized something, these waters flowing into Jerusalem. They symbolized God's protection and God's provision. This is the provision that uh, the Lord has made for Judah, the Lord has made for the city, the Lord has made for Jerusalem, the waters of Shiloh that go softly. Nothing spectacular, but they were uh, great tokens of God's provision and his sustaining power the waters of Shiloh. But Judah have, has refused the waters of Shiloh. In other, in other words, they've turned away from God and from his provision. They've uh, turned away from that. They've refused that. They haven't looked to him. And they have instead turned to Assyria. And they've rejoiced that Assyria has had this victory over Rezin and Pekah, Remalia's son. They've rejoiced in their arm of flesh. Rather than seeking the Lord and rejoicing in him, they've sought an arm of flesh and they've rejoiced in that. And that, is, that is why there will be judgment upon Judah and Assyria, the king of Assyria, who they have looked to to save them, to save their skins, will actually, well, oppress them and overcome them. Verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, not the quiet waters of Shiloh that provided for them. Now they're going to be deluged with a strong river like the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. He shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will... Uh, flood the land, as it were, and oppress the people. He shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land. Assyria will spread itself over Judah to the stretching out of the neck. And uh, uh, the, uh, the picture really is... Uh, of uh, being flooded to such an extent that uh, it's only your head that is showing. So you're almost drowned. This is what will happen to Judah uh, because uh, the king of Assyria will uh, overcome them. 
And, uh, well, this is the great judgment because they would not obey the Lord, because they would not turn to the Lord. Well, well, then there will be that great judgment. And this is something, of course, that we have to learn. If we do not uh, turn to the Lord in times of difficulty, if we do not turn to the, to the word of the Lord, if we do not pray to the Lord, if we do not uh, delight in uh, the provision, perhaps the quiet provision of the Lord, well, then there will be difficulty for us. We will have to uh, bear the trials that the world will bring. And this is what is happening to Judah. But then there are those words right at the end of the verse, in verse 8, O Emmanuel. So Assyria, the king of Assyria, will oppress the people of Judah, but it's almost as though there is a prayer. O Emmanuel, this is a cry for help. Help us, O Emmanuel, God with us. And well, the prayer is answered in the following verses. Verse 9, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Now this is a message to Judah's enemies, those who have joined themselves together against Judah, Syria and Israel. You have associated yourselves, O ye people. You have uh, created a league against Judah, but you shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Anybody who opposes themselves against Judah, not just uh, Syria and Israel, this is a warning to anyone who trifles with the Lord's people. Gird yourselves and ye shall be broken in pieces. You will not prevail. Take counsel together and it shall come to naught. Speak the word and it shall not stand. For God is with us. So even though Judah would uh, take that wrong choice, God would still have mercy and God would still protect Judah to some degree. And this is the wonderful, merciful heart of God. And this is what the Lord does. The Lord defeats our enemies, but it's for the sake of Christ. Take counsel together and it shall come to naught. Speak the word and it shall not stand. The enemies of Judah will be defeated. Why? Because of Christ, because of God with us. For his sake, for out of this nation, a Messiah, a Savior will come. And well, we've mentioned this already, but we have to remind ourselves, everything we do, everything we pray for, as a church, as individuals, it must be for the Lord's sake, for his sake, for Christ's sake, if we are to pray for souls to be saved. It's not so that the church will uh, be puffed up. It's for Christ's sake so that his name will be glorified. If we are to pray for, uh, for help in outreach and evangelism, again, it's for, for the Lord's sake. And even personally, in the battle against sin, the sins that so easily beset us, do we pray that the Lord remove these sins from us for our sake? Because we are fed up of being... Uh, uh, angry or proud or lazy or full of lust is it just for us we're fed up with these sins do it for me 
do it because I want my reputation to be enhanced. No, we must do it for the Lord's sake, for Christ's sake, for his honour, for his glory. Everything in our lives, we pray for him so that honour will be added to his name, so that uh, men and women and all those around us will be compelled to praise him for his sake. That's how our enemies, that's how the enemies in our lives will be defeated. We're not doing anything for us. We pray for Christ's sake, Lord, for him, because of all that he has done. Remove my enemies, overcome my sins, Help me, Lord, I pray, and then the Lord will undertake for Christ, for Emmanuel, for God with us. This is how they are instructed to pray. This is how Isaiah is instructed uh, to prophesy to the people. But then we continue. Verse 11, for the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, in the way of Judah, in fact, because what has Judah done? They have uh, made a confederacy and alliance themselves with Assyria, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. In other words, only fear God. The reason why Judah had uh, sought the help of the Assyrians is uh, because they were acting as though they did not have a God to pray to. They were acting as though they were like any other nation in the world. Any other nation in the world who were faced with such a threat well, of course, they would have sought alliances. They would have sought people to help them. But that's because they don't have God. They have to do that. But Judah was acting like this. Judah was under threat. And what did they do? They acted just like the rest of the fearful world. They acted just like them. The same fears that the rest of the world has, they had. And they acted in the same way as the rest of the world would do the rest of the fearful world. They make an alliance. They seek the help of the Assyrians. And this is what is being condemned here and exposed here. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. The Lord's people are not to share the same fears as the world, because the world are not the Lord's people. And we are to be distinct. We are not to fear what the world fears. This is uh, clearly spelt out for us here in this passage of Isaiah. What does the world fear? Well, let's just think of certain examples that we can apply to ourselves. The world fears losing the approval of men, going down in the estimation of men. We don't fear that. If uh, the world wants to speak uh, ill of us because we are faithful, let them do it. We don't have the same fears as everybody else, having to uh, uh, be part of the group, be part of the crowd, be part of the world. 
We don't have those same fears. We don't have to be popular. We can be unpopular. We don't have to fear offending people. Nowadays, there is so much fear. We mustn't cause offense. Well, now, of course, we don't go out of our way to uh, offend people. But we shouldn't have that fear of preaching the word of God faithfully and honestly and truthfully, even if it offends people. That's how the world is. That's what the world is afraid of. We don't have the same fears. Or we shouldn't have the same fears. Losing out on the things of this world, that's what the world is afraid of. Losing out on wealth, losing out on status, these are worldly fears. Even uh, the calamities, and there are so many calamities that we see in the world around us, these wars and rumors of wars, should we be scared of those things? Well, of course, our flesh naturally is scared. But even these things, when we see wars and rumors of wars, well, we ought to rejoice because we know that the time of the Lord is near and that these signs uh, signal that uh, he is even at the door. Sickness, death, yes, we guard ourselves from these things, but not fear. We don't fear these things. To have the same fears as the world, well, that is worldliness. That is a form of worldliness, to have the same fears as the world. And uh, Isaiah says it very clearly in his prophecy, only be afraid of the Lord. Verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Well, we mentioned this very recently when we looked at First uh, uh, Peter. That this is the only fear that is permitted in the Bible. The only fear, the fear of God. Sanctify him. Make him the first and foremost, the most important. He will be your fear. He will be your dread. And this is what it is to be holy. Again, another definition of holiness is not to have the same fears as the rest of the world. That's another way we could define holiness. We don't have the same fears as the rest of the world. We are distinct. And uh, this is a lesson that Judah should have learnt and, uh, well, failed to truly take on board. But we must move on. Time is, is running on. And I'm fearful we won't get to the end of this chapter. But we must just uh, at least look at uh, these uh, verses that speak of Christ. Verse 14, and he shall be for a sanctuary. This is speaking of Christ, and we'll see that in just a few moments. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Well, Christ... Christ is a sanctuary for his people, a place where we run to, a place of protection, a place of safety. He's a sanctuary for his people. But for those who 
are not his people. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel. And we know that when Christ came to his own, his own received him not. This is speaking of Christ. And while we see this in the New Testament so uh, uh, very clearly, uh, you don't have to turn to these uh, passages, but in uh, Romans 9 and uh, verse 33, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him, on Christ, shall not be ashamed. And this is uh, referring to those words in Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the first letter of Peter also, we have these uh, uh, references. Uh, first letter of Peter, chapter 2, and verse 6, we can begin. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Those who believe in Christ, well, Christ is precious, he's a sanctuary. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, from the book of Isaiah, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Those who are not the chosen, those who are not the elect, they were appointed to uh, stumble at uh, Christ. And so uh, Isaiah is speaking of the Lord Jesus when he is uh, referring when he is making this prophecy here, a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. And then, well, let's go down to verse 16 in Isaiah 8. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Now, this must again be speaking of Christ I will wait upon the Lord. I will serve the Lord. This is a prophecy of Christ that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. The true identity of Christ, his true nature, his uh, uh, salvation would be hid from so many in Israel. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. This is speaking of Christ and the church. I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. This is Christ and those who belong to Christ. I and the children. And again, we have a, a reference uh, in the New Testament in uh, the letter to the Hebrews. In... Uh, The letter to the Hebrews, 
speaking of uh, Christ and uh, uh, the children who uh, uh, will be his. In fact, I can't find the reference here at this present time. Uh, but it is there, so I haven't made a note of the reference here. Ah, yes, here. Hebrews 2, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is speaking of Christ. And uh, uh, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is Christ and the church. And if we just turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Well, we'll just close there. But this is speaking of the nature of the church. The children of God, they are given him for signs and for wonders. Well, even before Christ came into the world, the true children of God, the prophets, how were they identified? They were identified by signs and wonders. You had Moses, you had Elijah, you had Elisha. They were the true children of God. Signs and wonders accompanied them. Then when Christ came, you had the apostles showing forth signs and wonders. These are the children whom the Lord hath given him. They are for signs and for wonders. And even now in the modern age, in our time, in uh, this church, every child of God is a sign and wonder. That's how we see it. Every believer is a sign and a wonder. It's a sign. What is it a sign of? Well, it's a sign of Christ's power. Christ is uh, real, of course. Christ is alive. Christ is able to save. And if Christ is alive and if Christ is true and his word is true, he will return again one day. Every believer that is saved is a sign that Christ will return. It's a sign. And of course, every child of Christ is a wonder. A wonder. It's so wonderful that a believer, true believers, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. Isn't that a wonder? That's a wonder to so many. It's a wonder to people how a believer is changed, how a believer repents, how a believer has faith, how a believer forsakes the things of this world and waits for eternity. People marvel at these things. It's a wonder how we are not afraid, as we've just been uh, considering. We're not afraid of the things that the rest of the world are afraid of. People think, how can these Christians be so calm? How can these Christians have so much peace when we are so afraid of everything else? We're a, we're a wonder to them. A wonder. This is the church. We are a sign and a wonder to the rest of the world. And so Christ is seen here, even in Isaiah chapter 8, perhaps a chapter that is uh, not uh, renowned for its prophecies of Christ. Well, we've seen there is so much of Christ here, referenced in the New Testament, a sanctuary 
for those who trust in him, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence for those who do not. May we always own Christ as our sanctuary, as our protection, as our safety, and may we trust in him at all costs. Well, may the Lord bless these things to us.